Okay, we will go ahead and get started. Um, I, before, actually, before I get started on uh, part two of the Anabaptists, I do want to mention a book. This was recommended to me by Nathan Hager, and it is called The Pilgrim Church. And the author is E.H. Broadbent. And I'm about a quarter of the way through the book. It's, you know, a thick book. It's basically a survey of church history from a very unique point of view. So far, I'm really enjoying it, and I highly recommend it. So if you want to read something good, if you don't have anything currently going, <laughs> which, yeah, at Grace Christian Fellowship, we've always got about, you know, a big stack of books going. But uh, this is a very good book, and it, it is a very different approach to church history. I, I do recommend it. And thank you, Nathan Hager, for recommending it to me. So uh, we're going to pick off, start off now, rather, with, um, we're going to kind of resume. And again, like so many groups, uh, the Anabaptists found themselves severely persecuted in the 16th century. But probably of all the groups, the persecution was the heaviest for these Christians because not only were they persecuted, by the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic rulers of various European countries and their armies, but they were also persecuted by what we would think of as the mainstream Protestant groups, Reformed and Lutheran in particular. Um, They were constantly on the move. Menno Simons continued to lead the moderate groups of Anabaptists through the Netherlands, Germany, and Switzerland. The great persecutions of Mennonites and other Anabaptists during the 16th century forced one group of Mennonites to emigrate from the Netherlands to the Vistula River area in what is now northern Poland. And Poland has historically been heavily Roman Catholic, but they did find some sanctuary for a while in Poland. And for a time, their communities flourished. Some Anabaptist groups moved even further eastward into what today is Romania and the Ukraine and southeastern Russia. After their last martyr died in the Netherlands in 1574, the Mennonites finally found political freedom there. By 1700, baptized membership in the Mennonite churches of the Netherlands had reached 160,000. So Despite the heavy persecution, they continued to grow. Persecutions that continued in Switzerland into the 18th century drove many Mennonites into southern Germany, Alsace, which is eastern France, the Netherlands, and the United States. Now, a major schism occurred in 1693 to 97 when the Swiss Mennonite elder Jacob Amen in an attempt to preserve what he understood as biblical discipline, left the movement to form the Amish church. Jacob Amon was born on February 12, 1644 in Erlenbach im Simmental, canton of Bern, Switzerland. 
Amon was born into a family of tailors, and he was a tailor, and apparently was economically prosperous. Historical records show that by about 1680, Amon had converted to the Anabaptist beliefs. Sometime between his conversion and 1693, he was ordained to the ministry, possibly by Hans Riest, who would later become one of his greatest opponents. By 1693, Amon had moved from Switzerland to Heidelsheim Alsace in eastern France with family members, and that was where his father died. By 1712, the French government expelled all of the Anabaptist groups in Alsace, and after this time, there are no more records of Amon. Because of scarcity of materials, very little is known of Jacob Amon's teaching and day-to-day -day life. But of course, he is the founder of what we know today as the Amish. The only written records of Amon's thought and teachings that have survived are in three letters. From Jacob's letters, it can be learned that he was a firm disciplinarian, uncompromising in what he believed, and expected others to conform to the teachings of Christ and his apostles. His rejection of the good-hearted stemmed from his belief that whoever accepted the true saving faith would be baptized upon that faith, cost what it may. They would forsake the world and practice a very practical separation in their everyday life. Amen was willing to disregard longstanding customs and practices if they were not founded on God's word. He denied that he was trying to start a true faith. He believed in a new birth experience that would radically change a person. Amon wrote, if a miser does not turn from his fornication and a drunkard from his drunkenness or other immoralities, they are thereby separated from the kingdom of God. And if he does not improve himself through a pious, penitent life, such a person is no Christian and will not inherit the kingdom of God. The schism in which Amon became involved began among the Swiss Brethren in 1693. Until recent decades, he has been portrayed and heavily blamed for the division, being portrayed as an angry and harsh and demanding leader who imposed his views on others. With the publication of some of the correspondence from the period, beginning in 1950 with Mast's Amish letters, and the uncovering of new evidence, Amon's reputation has received a more positive appraisal among some researchers. And I would add, by the way, that although many Anabaptist groups, even today, do not educate their children beyond the eighth grade, the Mennonites have taken, many Mennonite groups, perhaps not all, Mennonites have taken a rather different approach, and most Mennonites today are usually very well educated. Many of them have four-year bachelor's degrees. Some of them have gone on to become scholars uh, specializing in uh, Anabaptist studies, historical studies, and doing research. And just up the road, if you drive up I-75, you drive up far enough past Lima, uh, you will come to Bluffton, Ohio, which is a small town, and there is Bluffton College, 
and Bluffton College was started by the Mennonites, um, and it, rem it has a Mennonite orientation still. So uh, Mennonite scholars have done a lot, continued to do a lot of uh, historical research and genealogical research, and this is how we do know uh, much of what we know about these groups from their beginnings in the 1500s. In the mid-1600s, a fresh influx of converts came into Swiss Anabaptism. The reform pastor at Bergdorf, Switzerland, even complained that half of the people in the villages in his area were either Anabaptist or deeply sympathetic to their cause. These fresh converts, zealous for their new faith, were in fact a sort of new movement within Swiss Anabaptism. Now, another point of the controversy came about over the adoption of the Dordrecht Confession of Faith that had been drawn up by Dutch Mennonites. Until this time, the Swiss, Swiss brethren, who did not use the name Mennonite for themselves, had no official confession of faith beyond the Schlietheim Confession, which, if you remember, we talked about that in the previous session, was one of the most early expressions of Anabaptist beliefs. The Dordrecht Confession contained two points that the Swiss Brethren had not historically practiced, foot washing in Article 9, or rather 11, and social avoidance, including not eating meals with those who had been shunned, Article 17. The Schlietheim Confession did not include anything about foot washing and did not prohibit eating a meal with anyone who had been shunned. In 1693, Jacob Amon, together with the ministers and elders, sent a general letter to people within the Swiss Brethren congregations asking for a meeting in which he wanted clarification about where they stood on three issues, shunning those who had been banned, whether liars should be excommunicated, and if people could be saved who did not follow God's word. The last issue, number three there, was referring to the good-hearted, meaning those who sympathized with the Anabaptist, but who themselves did not join the movement and did not undergo a second baptism. The good-hearted included people who helped them materially in times of persecution, but who would not take the step of rebaptism. Those siding with Amun felt that these good-hearted people should not be looked upon as saved unless they took up the cross and followed Christ in rebaptism and obedience to his teachings. Other issues surfaced during the discussions in the following years, including frequency of communion and how church discipline should be conducted. So another issue mentioned during the time of the schism was the establishment of stricter regulations concerning dress and beard styles. And I wanna emphasize too that because these groups were so pacifist in their orientation. They would not serve in the military. Um, and so one of the things that was ve became very important for them was we are not going to look like people, like ordinary people living in the, the world, 
And one of the things that was prevalent at that time was for men in the military to have full beards and mustaches. And uh, many military men had quite large and prominent mustaches. And so the, the Amish and Mennonite group and the groups that came out of these Anabaptist uh, beginnings in this time period, they began to wear beards that pretty much followed the chin line, but no mustache. So if you see uh, Amish or um, other Anabaptist people today, the men, you will see that they have no mustaches. And it is typical for a man to not grow a beard until he is married. Once he is married, he will grow a beard, but no mustache. Um, So social avoidance of banned individuals was the most controversial of all the issues. And thus, it has sometimes been erroneously considered as the only cause of the schism. At first, a few of the Swiss ministers agreed with Amund's views, but in a later meeting, Hans Ries would not agree with social avoidance, using Matthew 15, 17 as a basis for what enters the mouth is no sin. In other words, if you eat a meal with a, an excommunicated or shunned person, eating that meal does not defile you because what enters the mouth, in other words, the food that you eat does not defile you, according to Christ's teaching, that it is not what you take into your body that defiles you, but what is in your heart that is unregenerate in the flesh that defiles you. Another meeting was called in which Hans Ries did not show up saying he was busy. (coughs) Excuse me. Jacob Amen became irritated and then proceeded to announce that Hans Ries was excommunicated on six points. When Amen questioned some of the other Swiss ministers at the meeting where they stood on the issues, they pleaded for time to consult with their churches. Amen saw this as a turning back since some of them had previously expressed agreement with his side and he then excommunicated the Reist side. Within a few years, several attempts were made at reconciliation. After all, if you are part of a group that is being severely persecuted, having splits within the group just adds to the stress of trying to live the true Christian life. In February of 1700, Jacob Amen and several of his co-ministers removed the ban from the Swiss ministers and excommunicated themselves in recognition that they had acted too rashly and had grievously erred. They did not feel that they were in error concerning the issues they had brought up, but rather that they had not given sufficient time for the re-side to consider the issues before excommunicating them. But controversy remained about social shunning. Amish communities sprang up in Switzerland, Alsace, Germany, Russia, and Holland uh, in the 1700s, but the Amish began emigrating to North America early in the, in the 18th century, and they first settled in eastern Pennsylvania, where a large settlement remains to this day. Emigration to North America in the 18th and 19th centuries and assimilation with Mennonite groups gradually eliminated the Amish in Europe, and there are virtually probably no Amish in Europe today. 
Schism and disruption occurred after 1850 because of tensions between the new order Amish who accepted social change and technological innovation and the old order or traditional Amish who largely did not. During the next 50 years, about two thirds of the Amish formed separate small churches of their own or joined either the Mennonite church or the general conference Mennonite church. Today, most traditional Amish are members of the old order Amish Mennonite church. That's kind of an official title to the groups uh, that, you know, kind of the general grouping of Amish. In the early 21st century, there were about 250,000 Amish living in more than 200 old order Amish settlements in the United States and Canada. Amish and Mennonite settlers have also established congregations throughout Central and South America. In some parts of South America, they are actively uh, creating new settlements, which is causing some issues with the people you know, who live there. Uh, for example, in Bolivia, there are a lot of um, Amish and Mennonite groups that are coming in and buying up farmland. And this is making them not too popular with the people who are living there uh, now. Old order Amish settlements are divided into church districts autonomous congregations of about 75 bap baptized members. If the district becomes much larger, it is again divided because members meet in each other's homes. There are no church buildings. Each district has a bishop, two to four preachers, and an elder, or maybe sometimes more than one elder. But there are no general conferences, mission groups, or cooperative agencies. The Amish do not have any type of central organizing body that, for example, you know, if you look at Lutherans, there are, you know, three to four main Lutheran groups in the United States, and they have, you know, they are organized denominations that have, um, you know, basically a hierarchy and an organizational structure, but the Amish have no such thing. In that respect, um, they're almost similar to the Jews. You know, the more I study the Amish and other Anabaptist groups, there's, I keep finding, I think, a lot of similarity between uh, the Jews, because the Jews have no formal organized structures the way Christian, many Christian denominations do, and the uh, long history of having to move from place to place because of persecution. Due to a higher than average birth rate, Amish families often move looking for new areas to settle. And of course, again, if this, you know, this becomes a problem, if you have 10 children, say half of them are male, those men are, you know, when they grow up, they are going to marry and have families of their own. They are going to need to have farms of their own. Where will they go? Um, <clears throat> Many parts of the United States are becoming, uh, you know, increasingly um, population dense. And even though, for example, today in Ohio, the largest Amish communities in the world, the, the, the areas in which 
Amish are the most concentrated are right here in Ohio in Holmes and Wayne County. And even though there are so many Amish, many of them are, you know, having to uh, go find new places to live as much as they might like to stay in Ohio. Um, so, and there, there seems to be nothing that is really stopping Amish from continuing to have large families. And you notice, I don't have a lot of pictures here. And you know, one of the things about the Amish, if you know anything about them, they don't want to have their picture taken. So what I have up here, uh, it's a little bit dark, but I think you probably can see it uh, well enough. This is an Am Amish family going to church. The children are barefoot. The women, the, um, looks like mostly they have girls. So the girls are wearing the dark bonnets. A head covering is required in all of these groups. Um, the man is wearing a straw hat with a brim. That's very typical for many Amish groups. Um, and they're wearing dark colors. Their clothing is very plain. So again, the close community, the, um, the rural uh, lifestyle, living out in the country, Amish do not want to settle in towns or cities. They avoid those as much as possible. Uh, dressing plain, wearing very simple, often dark colored clothing, and speaking Pennsylvania Dutch, which is not really Dutch. It's actually German, but um, the word for Pennsylvania Dutch really should be Pennsylvania Deutsch, <laughs> which is German. Um, but, you know, of course, English people, they, they would consider people like us to be English, even though a lot of us aren't in, quote unquote English, but they just regard everybody as English who is not Amish. <clears throat> Pennsylvania Dutch is actually a Swiss German dialect with some English words thrown in. They have very limited use of modern technology, although it is interesting to see how uh, different Amish groups have adopted modern technology but adapted it to fit their particular lifestyle. So living a simple, mostly rural lifestyle with farming, manual labor, and humility is how they want to live and how they believe Christians should live. Educating children until the eighth grade, at which time children are expected to work alongside their adult family members full time. Amish church membership begins with baptism, usually between the ages of 16 and 23. It is a requirement for marriage within the Amish church. So if you're not baptized, if you're someone who's a young person, maybe in your late teens or early 20s, and you want to marry and stay in the community, you must first be baptized. Once a person is baptized within the church, he or she may only marry within the faith. So once you're baptized, if you leave the community, if you marry outside the faith, in other words, you marry a non-Amish person, you're going to be excommunicated. Those who are baptized and then leave the community are shunned. And probably a lot of you have heard about the practice of shunning. So if you are a non-baptized young Amish person and you decide to leave, you will not be shunned. 
Now, you probably won't have close communication with your family, but you can still uh, go to their house and maybe eat a meal with them once in a while. Uh, but once you're baptized, you're in. And if you leave at that point, um, you know, then you will be excommunicated and shunned. Two key concepts for understanding Amish practices are rejection of hakmut, which means pride, arrogance, or haughtiness, and high value placed on dumut, humility, and gelassenheit, calmness, composure, placidity, often translated as submission or letting be. Galassenheit is perhaps better understood as a reluctance to be forward, to be self-promoting, or to assert oneself. The Amish lifestyle is regulated by the Ordnung, which differs slightly from community to community and from district to district within a community. What is acceptable in one community may not be acceptable in another. I have heard of Amish people splitting and dividing over things like the type of hat that men should wear, whether it should have a ribbon or not have a ribbon, uh, splits over the type of suspenders that men wear to hold up their pants. They don't wear belts. Belt buckles would be considered prideful. It, it, it would draw attention to them. They do not want to draw attention to themselves, and it would contradict plain living. So many Amish groups wear suspenders. But then the question of what color those suspenders can be, what type of suspender, because there are different types, whether the suspender can have a pattern on it woven into the fabric. All of these, you know, to us seemingly really minute and unimportant distinctions become very important for them. Because they are, again, very concerned with living plain and being humble. <clears throat> While the Amish have settled in as many as 31 US states, Canada, and Central and South America, about 63% still are located in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Indiana. Another big concentration of Amish is in the northeastern corner of Indiana. If you want to go to Amish country, there's a little town up there called Shipshawana. You can get all the Amish you want in Shipshawana. <laughs> it's a, I've been there. It's a fun place to visit. You know, they've got the, the Amish quilt shops and, you know, Amish, uh, you know, you'll see Amish people driving their buggies up and down the roads. And, you know, you can eat Amish because the restaurants serve, you know, Amish food. And so it's, it's a fun place to go. And again, the greatest concentration of Amish is in homes and adjoining counties in Northeast Ohio, about 78 miles, I should have said, southwest of Cleveland. Present-day Amish largely continue their way of life as they have for hundreds of years, with some exceptions. Transportation close to home is by horse and buggy or bicycle. For longer journeys, they will hire English drivers to travel by car or van. So most communities will permit their members to take longer trips if they ride in a car or a van that is driven by a non-Amish person. But Amish cannot own, in most communities, Amish cannot own cars or trucks, and they cannot drive them. 
uh, most Mennonites do drive uh, cars and trucks. Farmers, or farming rather, can no longer support a large family, so various skilled trades are allowed, such as carpentry, woodworking, metalworking, and so forth. It is still preferred to live in rural areas and avoid cities and towns as much as possible. Now, sometimes, uh, and uh, Indiana is the state where I think I've heard of the most of this happening. There are times where Amish people, simply to provide for their families, Amish men will go work in factories. In Indiana, there are a lot of factories where RVs are made, and there are a lot of Amish men working in those RV factories. Um, you know, obviously, a man will provide for his family no matter what he has to do. Again, he will abide by the community regulations as much as possible, but of course he's not gonna let his family go hungry. Electricity is avoided unless you make it yourself. That's a novel idea. Battery-powered, gasoline-powered, diesel generators, hydraulic or other alternative energy sources uh, solar power is becoming very popular in, in Amish communities, are creatively used to power appliances, farming, shop equipment, and so forth. The problem with electricity, the way the English people use it is, when you get electricity from the power company, those power lines are connecting your home to the world. And they do not want that. They see electric power lines as a direct connection to between the family and the world, and they don't want that. So no electricity coming in through electrical wires and telephone lines and internet and so forth. All of that connects you to the world, and they are apart from the world. Amish have their own stores and companies that cater to almost exclusively Amish clientele. The world is to be avoided and should not affect the home and family life. No television, radio, internet, etc. No landline telephones in the home, again, because of the wires. Some communities allow the use of cell phones. Some Amish to run their businesses do have landline telephones, but that telephone will not be in their home. They will Many times they will construct a separate little outbuilding, a telephone shed, and that shed is at the furthest edge of the property so that there, you know, there's as little encroachment into their space as possible. And um, uh, many times you can, you, know, you can call that telephone, but no one will answer it if everybody's out in the fields working or they're in the shop running sawmill equipment and the like, they won't hear the telephone. Now, if someone is near the shed, happens to be near the shed, and they hear it ring, they'll answer it. But many times they don't. All you can do is leave a voicemail. Um, but they, you know, they only do that because of the need to maintain some contact with the outside world so that they can conduct business affairs. And again, Sunday services are held in homes. They are held every second Sunday. So they take turns going around from home to home in the community. And um, because sometimes they have to tra travel a ways to get to the home of 
their Amish community member where the Sunday service is being held. They only do it every second Sunday. And those Sunday services are an event. They typically last most of the day. Scripture is either read or recited from Martin Luther's German Bible written in high German. <clears throat> now, many Amish today cannot read the German Bible or they have trouble understanding it because it is so different than their everyday dialect. So the, the strong urge of many reformers in the, in the 1500s and earlier that everyone be able to read the Bible, ironically, today, this is not possible for many Amish. So, uh, you know, again, I find this somewhat ironic, um, but uh, it, many times they are, they're not encouraged to get an English Bible. Um, they want them reading the Bible in German, but many of, many of the Amish members do not understand the German of Martin Luther's Bible, or they understand a little bit and not much. Worship begins with a short sermon by one of several preachers or the bishop of the church district. This is followed by scripture reading and prayer. This prayer is silent in some communities. And then another longer sermon. The service is interspersed with hymns sung without instrumental accompaniment. They sing a cappella, no harmony. This is meant to put the emphasis on what is said uh, the verses of the hymns, not how it is being said. Again, this is plain singing, no instrumental accompaniment. Many communities use an ancient hymnal known as the Ausbund. The hymns contained in the Ausbund were generally written in what is referred to as early New High German, a predecessor to modern Standard German. And again, it may be the case that many of the Amish people singing these hymns may not totally understand what they are singing. And singing is usually very slow and a single hymn may take 15 minutes or longer to finish. Worship is followed by lunch and socializing. Amish youth enjoy playing baseball and softball and I should have thrown in there volleyball as well. And many Sundays will play these games together after the service. The Old Order Amish do not work on Sunday except to care for animals. So it's truly a Sabbath. Amish ministers and deacons are selected by lot out of a group of men nominated by the congregation. They serve for life and have no formal training. Amish bishops are similarly chosen by lot from those selected as preachers. Some congregations may forbid making purchases or exchanging money on Sundays. Because community members are expected to work hard six days a week, caring for their families, farms, and businesses, special events such as weddings, auctions, trade shows, fairs, etc., are looked forward to with great anticipation, and a wedding could last three days or maybe even longer. Amish lifestyles vary between and sometimes within communities. These differences range from profound to minuscule. Some of the more liberal beachy Amish congregations were, which permit automobiles may mandate that automobiles may be painted black or must be painted black. 
In some communities, various old order groups may vary over the type of suspenders males are required to wear, if any, or how many pleats there should be in a bonnet, or if one should wear a bonnet at all. Community leaders often regulate clothing colors and styles. Some of the strictest Old Order Amish groups, and they are with us to this day, are the Nebraska Amish, or sometimes they're called the White Top Amish, because instead of black buggies, they drive white painted buggies. Troyer Amish and the Schwarzentruber Amish. The practice of believer's baptism is the Amish admission into the church. They do not believe that a child can be meaningfully baptized. Their children are expected to follow the will of their parents on all issues, but when they come of age, they must choose to make an adult permanent commitment to God and the community. Many communities allow their teenagers who have not been baptized to have a time of freedom called rumspringa, which means jumping or hopping around. For Amish youth, the Rumspringa normally begins around the ages of 14 or to 16 and ends when a youth chooses either to be baptized in the Amish church or to leave the community. Many Amish uh, youth rather go into the world during this time, dress like American teenagers and do typical American teenage things. And I'll leave you to figure out what typical American teenage things are. And you can probably do that. Many Amish youth choose to come back to the community because the bishops and elders will only marry baptized Amish community members. And again, your family is all there, all your relatives, the close-knit, large family connections that you have known uh, from the time you were, you know, an infant. Uh, So many of them do come back. Amish youth who choose not to be baptized do not become adult uh, members of the community, but they will not be shunned by their families, but they cannot marry other Amish. About five or six months before baptism, classes are held to instruct the candidates, teaching them the strict implications of what they are about to profess. The Saturday before baptism, they are given their last chance to withdraw. This, you know, they, they treat baptism as extremely important, extremely serious. The difficulty of walking the narrow path is emphasized, and the applicants are instructed that it is better not to vow than to make the vow and break it later on. Those who come to be baptized sit with one hand over their face, representing humility and submission to the church. The candidates are asked three questions. Can you renounce the devil, the world, and your own flesh and blood? Can you commit yourself to Christ and his church and to abide by it and therein to live and to die? And in all order, there's that German word again, Ordnung, of the church, according to the word of the Lord, to be obedient and submissive to it and to help therein. Typically, a deacon ladles water from a bucket into the bishop's cupped hands, which drips over the candidate's head. Then the bishop blesses the young men and greets them into the fellowship of the church with a holy kiss. 
The bishop's wife similarly blesses and greets the young women. Once a young person is baptized, they are considered a full member of the community. Amish do not proselytize. They don't go out sharing the gospel. So the growth of the community comes from having large families with lots of children. Conversion is very, very rare. Although I have heard of instances of people converting, and occasionally some Amish families will adopt or foster children, and when they do that, they will raise them exactly as they would raise any of their natural children. They will be dressing plain, they'll learn the Pennsylvania Dutch dialect, they will live the Amish lifestyle. Um, I didn't mention this in the, in the slides, but um, communion for most Amish groups is um, not nearly as significant as in other Christian groups, and most groups only observe communion once or twice a year. <clears throat> so now we turn to the Hutterites. Persecution drove the Hutterites to Hungary, Ukraine, and Russia in the 17th century, and then to South Dakota, Minnesota, and Central Canada by the 1870s. The reason the Hutterites had to leave um, Eastern Europe and Russia, parts of Russia, uh, was because in, beginning in about the 1870s, the Russian government imposed um, universal conscription, compulsory conscription. And what that meant was every able-bodied man had to serve a required amount of time in the army. And of course, this is unthinkable because they will not fight. They will not take arms up against anyone. So for that reason, they left um, that part of the world and um, they came to a place in the new world that was very much like the place that they left. And you, if you know anything about South and North Dakota, Minnesota, uh, the Upper Great Plains, Saskatchewan and Alberta provinces in Canada, those parts of North America are very much like the places that they left in the Ukraine and Russia. Big wide open spaces where you can have big families and big farms and nobody's gonna bother you. Now during World War I, because of persecution inspired by their pacifism, they migrated to Canada. So the Hutterites living in the United States were, um, and I should also men mention the, the Amish were persecuted as well during World War I and World War II. Um, you know, the, the thinking was these wars are world wars and why wouldn't you defend the country uh, that has provided you with religious freedom, free of persecution, you know, you should take up arms to, you know, fight these foes that want to, you know, conquer our lands and take our freedom. Um, and during, the, during both World War I and World War II, many people, from, men from Anabaptist groups throughout the United States and even Canada were put in jail. Um, and for the Hutterites, um, they were able to find refuge mostly in Canada during World War I. Uh, the Canadian government wasn't forcing people to fight. <clears throat> uh, later, after the war, many of them returned to the United States. Their high annual birth rate, 
45.9 per thousand has necessitated new colonies, sometimes to the displeasure of neighbors who distrust their communal life, object to their pacifism and generally misunderstand their unorthodox way of life. Because again, the Hutterites are communal. And here I have, and hopefully, uh, hopefully you can see that fairly well. But this is a map that shows the path the Hutterites took beginning <clears throat> in the early 1500s, starting up there in the upper left-hand corner from um, southern Germany, moving into what is today Eastern Europe, uh, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, um, Serbia, Kosovo, Romania, Bulgaria. Um, and then from there, they moved to the Ukraine. Um, now, another thing that I just haven't had time to go into this, another reason for the problems that they encountered, the further east they went, not only were there, you know, the Russian government, the Polish government, the Bulgarian government, but there were the Ottoman Turks. During this time, uh, the Islamic Ottoman Turks were pressing westward into the same areas that is shown on this map. And again, this is something I haven't, you know, I, maybe in another talk we can talk about the effects of um, the Ottoman Turkish Empire pressing in on Europe. Um, but at this time, you know, they're not only facing persecution from Roman Catholics, Lutherans, and other reform groups. Um, you know, they're misunderstood by nearly everyone. Uh, even the Amish are not communal. I mean, they have a very close community-oriented lifestyle, but they don't literally all live together with hundreds of people living in the same buildings, uh, sharing all meals together. Um, but they're also pressed um, by the Islamic Turks that are moving into this area. And then, of course, the final straw is when Russia says, all of your able-bodied men must serve in the armed forces. That's it. They've got to go to, you know, where else? The New World. <clears throat> so by the time of the move to North America, all of this persecution had reduced their numbers to only about 400 people. Today, almost all Hutterites live in Western Canada and the upper Great Plains of the United States. Current total population is estimated to be around 50,000. Um, they aren't really moving south. They like the upper Great Plains of the United States and the Canadian provinces of Saskatchewan and Alberta. And I guess there are uh, a lot now in British Columbia as well. Hutterite groups in the U.S. and Canada are named for the leader of each group, and the three main groups are called, and I'm going to butcher these names, sorry, Schmeidelut, Darius Lut, Leher Lut, Lut being based on the German word for people. And of course, they do speak a German dialect uh, among themselves. Some Hutterites split off after the move from Russia in the 1870s and began to live an individual lifestyle. These Hutterites eventually merged with Mennonite communities and today no longer have a separate Hutterite identity. So if you meet a Hutterite person in the United States or Canada today, they are living communally. 
And here is a photograph. I got this, I found this in Wikipedia, and uh, I think you can see it fairly well. And again, like most Anabaptist groups, they don't want to be photographed. Um, you can't get close to these colonies, but here is uh, you know, a fairly prosperous colony out on the Great Plains of the US. And it's, it looks essentially like a compound. Hutterite colonies often own large tracts of land, and since they function as a collective unit, they can make or afford higher quality equipment than if they were working alone. Some also run industrial hog, dairy, turkey, chicken, and egg production operations. They, they use mo many modern um, methods and tools and equipment in their agricultural operations. An increasing number of Hutterite colonies are again venturing into the manufacturing sector, a change that is reminiscent of an early period of Hutterite life in Europe. Before the Hutterites emigrated to North America, they relied on manufacturing to sustain their, their communities. Hutterites practice a near total community of goods. All property is owned by the colony and provisions for individual members and their families come from common resources. They eat lunch and dinner together as a community every day. Um, now, apparently individual families have their own living areas and they'll eat breakfast together as a family in many colonies. And this practice is based largely on Hutterite interpretation of passages in chapters 2, 4, and 5 of Acts, which speak of the believers having all things in common. Thus, the colony owns and operates its buildings and equipment like a corporation. Housing units are built and assigned to individual families, but belong to the colony, and there is very little personal property. Hutterite colonies are mostly patriarchal, with women participating in roles such as cooking, medical decisions, and selection and purchase of fabric for clothing. Imagine trying to come up with enough clothing for 100 people or 150 people. And this, you know, you're participating in this uh, communal lifestyle, all the food, all the clothing, everybody's got to pitch in and help. Each colony has three high-level leaders. The two top-level leaders are the minister and the secretary. A third leader is the assistant minister. The minister also functions as president in matters related to the incorporation of the legal business entity associated with each colony. The minister, secretary, and all boss positions are elected positions. Only men have the right to vote. Many community decisions are put to a vote before they are implemented. The secretary is widely referred to as the colony manager, boss, or business boss, and is responsible for the business operations of the colony, such as bookkeeping, check writing, and budget organization. The assistant minister helps with church leadership, in other words, preaching, responsibilities, but will often also be the German teacher for the school-age children. And they make sure that their children have instruction, not just religious instruction, but that they will learn to speak the German dialect. The secretary's wife is called the Schneider, from German for tailor, and thus she is in charge of all clothing. And again, that must be a formidable task. <laughs> um, I could certainly go on and on. There are many more um, 
aspects of life for these um, Anabaptist groups uh, in, in the U.S. and other parts of the New World today. Again, most Anabaptists that are left in Europe are largely Mennonite, uh, if they exist at all. And I'm sure there's many parts of Europe that are completely devoid of any type of Anabaptist group. Again, centuries of persecution and all the difficulties that they have faced because of the lifestyle they have chosen, what they believe is the true Christian way of living, uh, really made it impossible for them to stay in the old world. Um, I know I've gone long here. Are there any questions or comments at this point? There's so much you can read about on the internet and other places. There's books. If you want more, if you're interested in studying um, on your own about these things, I've got information on those resources. Just, you know, send me a text or an email or Jeff. What would you say is our biggest takeaway from, from these groups as, for us as believers? Um, they're not going away. And so that means that from time, now for those of us, you know, living in Dayton, Ohio, we think there's no Amish or I, I don't know of any Mennonite groups around here. But interestingly, if you go north just a little ways up around Troy and Tip City, a little further west towards Covington and even further west towards the Indiana border, there are Anabaptist groups up there. I haven't even talked about, and there are many Anabaptist groups, you know, I've just touched on the main ones, really. Um, there are uh, old German Baptists. There are a lot of them up in that area around Englewood, north of Huber Heights. Um, they are not going away. They live among us. And you may find yourself from time to time, you may have interaction with people from these types of communities. I have, Greg and I have, through our business. Um, I've, Greg and I have been invited into our Amish homes, a great privilege, and it was wonderful. Um, the Amish homes that we were in, there was just a tremendous sense of peace and order and calm. And, you know, I was like, I can see why they want to live the way they do um, in some respects. And in other respects, um, it can be a hard way to live, certainly. All the work, <laughs> all the work. So, Jean, were you, were you gonna say gonna something? I mentioned that there's a lot of German Baptists. A lot of German Baptists. And if you're at a restaurant, you know, if you see a woman wearing a, a light uh, or white head covering, a little bonnet made of sheer fabric, and she's wearing a long skirt, uh, usually the, the old German Baptists and, and other groups of this type wear lighter clothing. Um, if you see a woman, a family, I've seen, I've seen Mennonite families in restaurants, some, some conservative Mennonite groups, you know, the women wear the long dresses and the head coverings. Um, if you see someone like that, you know that this is uh, someone from uh, these types of groups. And you may have, you know, you never know. Uh, in the course of living on this earth, you may find yourself interacting with people from these groups. Um, you know, and of course, if you want to go to Amish country for a little vacation, <laughs> you know, there are many places in Ohio to go, Indiana, 
Um, there's places in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, <laughs> the Amish, you know, it's almost like going to the zoo. Oh, let's look at the lion. You know, uh, a lot of the Amish are kind of like, you know, have mixed feelings about Amish country. Yes, Sydney. Yeah, there, there are. <laughs> Perfect place to get engaged. Um, yeah, yeah, you can. There are there are Amish farms that you can tour and you can see they how they live and uh, yeah, it's very interesting. And you know, they're not going away. They're continuing to um, live among us in various ways. Um, they still run into issues with um, some legal and governmental stuff, and I haven't, I've just scratched the surfaces on that. I didn't even get into the whole thing about taxes and insurance. Um, the Hutterites uh, in Canada have, um, they don't want to have, they don't want to have, uh, they drive, they drive cars and trucks, but they don't want to have to have a, an ID with their picture on it. And they've actually gone to court with uh, the government of Canada about that. So, um, you know, from time to time, they continue to clash with the civil government of the countries in which they live. So I've gone way too long. Again, there's many resources available that you can study more about these groups. Um, if you want, uh, you know, I've got some information if you're interested. So that's it for the Anabaptists.